For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, ourselves disobedient, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hating, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. For God's grace has appeared. It brings salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our Father, when we were lost in our sin, you sought us first. You said by nature none of us seek you, but thank you that you have worked in our lives in a way that we would even be interested. Thank you for the grace that has appeared bringing salvation to all, for Jesus died for all. But thank you, it instructs us who believe to say no to worldliness and to say yes to Jesus, to live zealously in this life, looking for the blessed hope of his coming. We come today as your people asking you to work in our midst. We pray for the brand new week that is in front of us, another opportunity to have a part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Help us, each and every person listening to me, to own the Great Commission as their own. For if we know you, you told us that each of us are to go and to tell. So we pray for opportunity this week that you would provide open doors to be able to speak to someone about your son. We come and we open our lives before you because we know your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We know your son commanded, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so as you shape us into the image of your son, we ask that today the word would have a place to find room in our hearts that we would not just be those who hear the Scripture, but those who are willing to obey. Father, I ask you for your help in my weakness. I pray that you would come and fill me and empower me and use me and anoint me, that you would use my mind and my lips and my heart to glorify Jesus. And we ask in his holy name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation of the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel. If you are new to the Bible, if you will find the Psalms that are about dead center, and if you will scan to the right, right after the prophet Ezekiel, you will come to the book of Daniel. I am thrilled to be able to come back to the book of Daniel. We had departed for a few months from it to give our Graniteville campus a chance to catch up with us. But I love the prophet Daniel for two principal reasons. Number one, he's a man of all seasons. He's a man who knows how to stand strong morally, spiritually, ethically, in a corrupt culture. And in many ways, the nation that he lives in mimics the nations of the final days upon the earth. And here's a man who stood up after one pagan king followed by another, who never once compromised his convictions. And unlike many of his forefathers, even giants like Abraham, Moses, Jacob, David, 
The prophet Daniel is one of the few men in all of the scripture of whom nothing negative is written. He's in the same league with Joseph and Joshua and Nehemiah. Daniel is a man for all seasons. This is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying to his people today. But the second reason I love to study the prophet Daniel is because when you understand Daniel, it unlocks all of the great prophetic passages of the New Testament, especially the Revelation. If you ever attend seminary, at least one that believes the Bible, you will always study Daniel-Revelation as a pair because the Revelation cannot be understood apart from the prophet Daniel. And so we're coming into a section of Scripture that is really hard work. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like training for a marathon. The marathon will be Revelation itself, but the training is the prophet Daniel, especially chapters 7 through 12. And so my plan is to teach Daniel the rest of this book. If you haven't read it recently, you might want to do so this week. And then when we are done, by God's grace, if Jesus has not come, we will teach the Revelation. Now, please know the only way to understand Revelation is to understand critical passages like the ones that we are studying today. It sounds like you have found it, so I want to begin by reading the first eight verses of chapter 7. Follow along in your Bibles. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So this morning we continue our exploration of Daniel. It's one of the most exciting, one of the most popular books, and one of the most historically documented books in all of the Bible. Daniel 7 is a passage that most Bible scholars will tell you is critical to your understanding of prophecy. It's one of the most detailed, comprehensive prophecies in, of future events in all of the Scripture. We're not going to rush through it. It is too important. I'm not sure how long we'll be here. I think if I were to preach it in one sermon, we'd be here over three hours. And I think a lot of you would leave before I was done. But uh, we'll work our way through it carefully. And let me just say this. One of the sad realities of the prophet Daniel is that like Genesis, next to Genesis, it is the most attacked book in all of the Bible. 
And the reason is, number one, because of its miraculous nature. The fallen, unregenerate mind cannot understand the things that the Spirit of God, Paul wrote. And so they don't always embrace the miraculous. But secondly, one of the reasons the lying, liberal, lost critics of our day do not like it is because of the precise nature of its prophecies. Within the prophet Daniel are some of the most specific prophecies found in all of the Scripture. And it is one of the divine proofs that God left within the book for its divine inspiration. And so if there are prophecies that are mentioned in this book that have been fulfilled and will again literally be fulfilled in the future then it has huge implications on a person's life. And a rebel who doesn't want God over him, rather than try to submit to the Bible, he will just argue against it. Now, I think before we get into the specifics of the prophecy, let me make some introductory comments so that we can understand the chronological setting. As you can see from this chart, the book of Daniel divides into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 6 is history. Chapters 7 through 12 is prophecy. The first six chapters are primarily historical with a little bit of prophecy in it. The last six chapters are primary prophecy with a little bit of history in it. Or to think of it differently, the first six chapters deal with Daniel and his personal friends, while 7 through 12 deals with Daniel and his people's future, namely the nation of Israel. Now, if you're here for the first half of the book, and it's all online and all uh, on DVD or audio for you to download if you're interested, uh, but if you remember in the introductory session to chapter 1, we met Daniel when he was about 15 years old, when he's taken captive along with his three friends and carried off to Babylon. When we saw him last time in Daniel 6, he was in his 80s. And so if you follow carefully the chronology of the book, when you meet him in the lion's den, that really is the capstone event of his entire life in many ways. And yet, when you come to chapter 6, obviously the book is not over. It's the end of Daniel's life, but there's still chapters 7 through 12. So understand that all of the events in chapters 1 through 6 happen chronologically. But there's some gaps of time in the chronology. We met him as a teenager, then we meet him in his 40s, we meet him in his 60s, and at the end we meet him in his 80s. And so the first six chapters have gaps between them. In chapters 7 through 12, while they happen chronologically, they don't all happen after chapter 6. You could take chapters 7 through 12 and put them over 1 through 6, some happening during that time frame and some of those visions happening after that time frame. And you immediately have to pick up on that when you start reading the opening verse of chapter 7. Look at it. It said, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And immediately you think, Oh, I remember him. He was the fellow who saw the handwriting on the wall. We met him back in chapter 5. And that night when Darius the Mede came in and took over. And so, again, while the, the visions in 7 through 12 happen one after another, they don't happen after the events of chapter 6. And so we're going to see that the visions of chapters 7 and 8 happen between chapters 4 and 5. After Nebuchadnezzar comes off his throne, and then uh, when Belshazzar, some of it during his life. 
So it's not by accident that God did it that way. And before we're done, if you're patient with me, you'll see God's rationale behind it. And so just remember, the big picture, historical, prophetical, it all happens chronologically, 1 through 6. 7 through 12 happens chronologically, but they happen at different times. So when you come into chapter 8, if you turn the page in verse 1, it says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, um, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. And again, you read that and you say, oh, this is during the reign of the same king as the guy we read about in chapter 7. And then if you look at chapter 9 in verse 1, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Harasuerus of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And you say, oh, I remember Darius. He is the Median king that night during that drunken party when Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. He comes in and he takes over the Babylonian kingdom. And we studied Darius the Mede. Remember, he was the king that uh, Daniel interfaced with in the sixth chapter when he was in the lion's den. If you turn over again to chapter 10 and verse 1, notice. And the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who, who was named Belshazzar. Remember, that's Daniel's other name. Don't confuse him with Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the pagan name Xerxes gave him. We learn that in the first chapter of the book. But you read 10.1 and you think, oh yeah, I, I remember him. He is mentioned in the last verse of chapter 6. And this is important because the vision of chapter 9 takes place between uh, chapters 5 and 6. It fills in some of the gaps. And then chapters 10 through 12 fit in after chapter 6. So I'm just going to introduce that to you. We'll go back to it, and I think it will become very clear as we work through it in the weeks ahead. So let me just say that chapters 7 through 12 are filled with visions and dreams outlining God's plan for the Gentile nations of the world and for the nation of Israel. If you remember when we came to chapter 2, the language changed from Hebrew to what? One person had it, one remembered, Aramaic, hopefully some more. Uh, the Aramaic section, remember all of the Bible is written in three languages, the Old Testament, almost entirely in Hebrew, with a few chapters here and there in Aramaic, in this large section of Daniel in Aramaic, and for a reason, because the focus is on the Gentile nations of the world. And so the vision in chapter 7 deals with God's plan for the Gentile, the non-Jewish nations of the world. But it's still a turning point when you come to the seventh chapter. We call it the prophetic section because it moves from the third person where Daniel describes other people to the first person singular in 7 through 12. I, Daniel, saw this. I, this. I, that. And so forth. But then the visions that follow after chapter 7 deal with Israel. And Israel is very important in God's scheme of things. Most prophecy in the Bible concerns the people of Israel. And the prophetic schedule that God has for the nations of this world will ultimately be accomplished through Israel. And so there are people today of the so-called Reformed faith who have robbed that word from the broad uh, body of evangelicalism. Reformed theology just believed in those five theologies, uh, those five statements on the wall behind you, on that stained glass, the five solas of the Reformation. 
They didn't necessarily believe in five points of sovereign election. And they certainly did not believe, at least the Anabaptists, that God was done with the people of Israel. So one popular Christian leader, John Piper, says, and I beg to differ, that Israel is no different from Uganda. He's dead wrong. Dead wrong. And Daniel the prophet will prove him dead wrong. Now let me just say, a lot of pastors don't preach prophecy. But you cannot be faithful to teach the whole counsel of Scripture without dealing with prophecy. Some just say, oh, Jesus is coming back. Well, wonderful, we know that. But a third of the Scriptures is prophetic in nature. And you cannot teach the Word of God without teaching it. But one of the reasons prophecy is confusing for some is because they do not understand the distinction between the church, the body of Christ, and Israel. And we are going to see that clear distinction that God makes before we are done. And so some of these visions deal with the people of Israel and how God will use that nation to bring about the second coming of Messiah. Just as he used them to bring about the first coming, God came in this world through the prophecies that related to Israel where he was born in Israel. He will come back to this world to literally the Mount of Olives and he will fulfill all of the remaining prophecies through Israel. So that's kind of where we're at. I think it will become clearer to you as we step through it. We're going to see this morning uh, the broad panoramic sweep of Gentile nations through four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, when you come to the seventh chapter, you might think, well, why are we going through this again? It seems like God addressed this in chapter two. He did. And it's not because God doesn't have anything to say. God is not just giving us filler here. He is, one, underscoring the importance of these four nations as they relate to the coming of His Son. But also, there's some big differences between the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and the dream of Daniel in Daniel 7. One was a dream by a pagan king, and it was interpreted by a man of God. This dream is given to a man of God, and it's interpreted by an angel. Now, again, let me just give you kind of an overview of the chapter, where we are going in the next several weeks. Uh, Verses 1 through 3 that we will focus on today uh, deal with the introduction to the vision. When you come to verses 4 through 14, and we'll just crack the door on it today, it deals with the information that is in the vision. And then when you come to verses 15 through 28, God gives us an interpretation of of the vision. So that's where we're going in the next three weeks. If you want to use your note-taking outline, we begin today with the introduction to the vision. Now, in the introduction to the vision, Daniel tells us both when he dreamed and what he dreamed. So first consider when Daniel dreamed. Verse 1 begins, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Again, going back to what we discussed chronologically, this vision takes place between chapters 4 and 5, just like Daniel 9 takes place between 5 and 6, and then uh, the remaining chapters after, all right? So he is already introduced us to this man, Belshazzar. And it happens in the first year of Belshazzar, which means it happened after the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? When Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, we studied his conversion in the fourth chapter. After he ultimately dies and goes off the scene, 
There's a few short kings that come to power, and their reign is very short-lived, but eventually Nabonidus comes on the throne. Nabonidus is this man's daddy. And so for many years, the critics laughed at Daniel. They said it's inaccurate. We know all about Nabonidus. We have no historical record of Belshazzar. Therefore, the book of Daniel is in error. Again, the critics want to attack it because if, it true, if it's true, it has huge implications. But then they found this little Babylonian steel, archaeology, and they found this guy's name, Belshazzar. Now, Nabonidus is king number one. But if you know anything about Chaldean history, you know he was not a man who liked to stay at home. He often engaged in battles throughout the empire, but he also, throughout the empire, was involved in a lot of great archaeological projects. And so he had a co-regent, his son, Belshazzar. And if you remember, the night that Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall and Daniel interprets it for him, what does Belshazzar do? He makes Daniel third in the kingdom. Why? Because Nabonidus is one, Belshazzar is two, and Daniel becomes three. Look, the critics of this world may have the latest word, but they don't have the last word. The word of God has never, ever been proven wrong. So Belshazzar, he's going to reign for a total of 15 years. And on that night, of course, um, when Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall, he's about 65 years old. So in the first year, if you want to put out in the margin 553 B.C., that's a firm date, not just biblically, but in secular history. It is a firm date. That was the first year of this king. Furthermore, we're told, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Now, this dream and the visions that accompanied it apparently happened to Daniel at night as he lay on his bed. Now, according to the Bible, there are two specialized ways that God would sometimes communicate through his, to his people, through dreams and visions. Moses wrote in the Torah, hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. So God, and you can read it throughout the first five books, spoke in visions and dreams. And when you study scripture, you, dis you discern that there's a difference between a vision and a dream. A dream was given when someone was asleep. A vision was given to a person while he was awake, but it seemed like you were asleep. Well, on this particular occasion, while he's on his bed, he has both dreams while he's asleep and visions while he's awake. And of course, the question that often comes when you come to a portion of Scripture like this is, does God still give visions and dreams today? Well, let me begin with a general principle. If you feel like you had a dream or a vision from God, more than likely it's indigestion and not uh, inspiration, all right? But having said that, I would never limit God as to what He can do. In the book of Acts, the second chapter, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. Listen to this. And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. When in the last days? When did the last days begin? According to Peter, he said, this is what Joel said, what you're witnessing right in front of your eyes, said would take place in the last days. It began on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. 
that there's nothing prophetically that needs to take place for Jesus to come and catch up his church. There's all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming. But for the rapture, for the catching up of the church, nothing has to be fulfilled. It could happen today if God so chooses. Now, I believe we're not only in the last days, but we are in the latter times, another term, one that Daniel uses, one that Paul uses to describe the last of the last days. In either case, since the day of Pentecost, God could give and has given dreams and vision. And it was especially important before the Scripture was completed. Before the Bible was written, even in the early years of the church, God used different people as conduits of direct revelation. You say, well, does God normally speak in dreams and visions? No. It is very rare. Most of what Israel learned, God wrote through a prophet. And God inspired that writing. Occasionally, he gave them a dream or a vision that was incorporated in that writing. But it is very, very rare even miracles in the Bible, they only happen on the great events of human history. Moses was the first one in the Holy Scripture to do a miracle. All the men who lived before him, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, none of those guys did miracles. Centuries went by until a miracle was done by Moses and shortly after Joshua as he carried him to the promised land. And hundreds of years went by and there were no miracles. To Elijah, and Elisha came on the scene, and then God had another cluster of miracles. And hundreds and hundreds of years went by until Christ and his apostles came on the scene. And there's another cluster of miracles that is in the future during the coming of the great tribulation. But my point is, is that dreams and visions are not seen uh, consistently through biblical history. They are rare. And you shouldn't tell God how he should speak to you. And let me just say this parenthetically, you are never ever told in the Bible to seek a vision. But you are commanded in the Bible to study the Word of God. And even if someone were to have a vision today, and in my humble opinion, I only know one man in the last maybe 200 years who I respect, who I think had a legitimate vision from God. But if God gives a vision today, it will not be extra-revelational, nor will it take away from the Word of God, as we will see later in our study of Revelation. Most of the people I meet who claim, well, God gave me this dream, and let me tell you it. They're either A, suffering from indigestion, or B, and more often than not, they are on an ego trip. And they want you to know how spiritual they are, because God gave them this dream or this vision. Now, while I have never had a dream or a vision, I had the experience and have the experience that Daniel had, where I'm laying on my bed at night, and I've been studying a passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden, God gives me not a a new revelation, because no new revelation is given. He gives me an illumination. He'll take a passage I've been studying, and he brings to the forefront of my mind, and it just clicks. Oh, I see it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit serves as our teacher. What do I do? I get up and I write down what God's showing me. Many times it happens when I'm out running, and I'm just pouring over. I take a break. I study for about six hours on Wednesday. Then I go running, and I come back and study another four hours. And oftentimes it's on that run when the Scripture is running through my mind that God gives me some insight. Well, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. 
Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. In other words, what follows is the essence of this dream and these visions. That tells us he's not giving us every detail. He's giving us the essential points. He's giving us the heart, the summary of the message, which tells me every single word is very, very weighty. Every sentence is chock full of truth. We are getting the distilled essence according to the opening verse. So that's when Daniel dreamed. Secondly, let's think about what Daniel dreamed, what he dreamed. Notice now verses 2 and 3. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, Daniel is the first apocalyptic writer in the Scripture. And if you know anything about apocalyptic literature, it's filled with symbols and with signs. And so Daniel, in this dream, will communicate it using a lot of signs and symbols. And he gives three very clear pictures. The first picture concerns the symbolism of the sea, the symbolism of the sea. We read here in verse 2, I was looking. Again, he's moving now from the third person to the first person singular, because these are dreams he had. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So first, what does the great sea refer to? Now, if you've studied the Bible, then you know that whenever God speaks of geography or directions in the Bible, it's always in reference to Israel. For instance, north or south, east or west is always north or south or east or west of Israel. When I was a child, there was a map of the world, and of course, they had the United States right in the center. Well, if God were to lay a flat map of the world for us to see Israel would be in the center. Israel is the center of the world in God's eyes. And directions in the Bible are always given, both Old and New Testament, in reference to Israel. Well, what are the four seas that are generally mentioned in the Bible? Well, there's the Galilean Sea, there's the Red Sea, there's the Dead Sea, and then the Bible repeatedly refers to the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea is not the Atlantic or the Pacific. In the Bible, of course, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you're using the NESB or the New King James, you will notice that great sea is in lower cases. Uh, that was an interpretive decision, but correct. They didn't put great sea in caps because they are not referring to a proper place. This is a figurative, a symbolic use of the great sea, and the text itself will bear that out. We do that sometimes in English. We'll say, well, you look at that great sea of people. That's a figurative, obviously, expression. Isaiah says in the 57th chapter, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet in its waters, toss up refuse in mud. Isaiah 17, 12 says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. Or in the New Testament, in the Revelation, the 17th chapter, and he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So in these passages, the lost people of this world are compared to the roaring, pulsating seas. And so Daniel uses this term sea symbolically. And again, it will bear it out through the context because four beasts will come out of the sea. And the four beasts are not oceanic creatures, but kings or kingdoms of which come out of the mass of humanity. So there's the symbolism of the sea. Secondly, there's the working of the wind, the working of the wind. We read in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven 
were stirring up the great sea. So he mentions here the four winds of heaven, winds blowing from the four points of the compass, blowing, agitating this massive sea. Well, what do they stand for? Well, the four winds are used in Scripture as a picture of God's judgment. For instance, in Revelation 7 and verse 1, we read this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind, no judgment should blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So God uses some angels to restrain the four winds. And in Revelation 7, God is restraining, his he's restraining an evil force against his people, against 144,000 Jewish people. After the church is raptured, after the church is caught up, we're going to study in Revelation 7 that God is going to miraculously convert 144,000 Jewish people. And they're going to become the evangelists. And until they're converted and sealed so that no one can hurt them, God will protect them because he is going to use them. And so when we come to Daniel, the 10th chapter, we're going to say that there's an evil wind that blows and the evil hot breath is of the devil himself. When we come to the 10th chapter, some of you will never listen to the news in the same way. Some of you will never read your your uh, computer page or newspaper in the same way. Why? Because you're going to see that different nations of the world have different fallen angels, evil angels, that are working invisibly behind the scene. What Paul says in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, is energizing the sons of disobedience. And so we're told here in this symbolism of the sea, we're told something about the wind, but third, I want you to see the third picture, the birth of the beast, the birth of the beast. We're told in verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So it's out of that turmoil, out of that unrest that these four great beasts were coming up from the sea. And pictured here in his dream, spawned out of this sea of humanity, stirred up by the evil satanic winds behind it, come four great beasts that picture four successive empires. If you look in Daniel 7, 17, the Bible interprets itself. It tells us specifically what the four great beasts represent. Here it is on the screen. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So you can see he's using symbolism. He's not talking about the literal great sea, the Mediterranean. He's talking about the sea of humanity and the evil satanic forces that are behind the scenes and four great kings who will come. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel 2, then you will remember that we studied these four empires. And if you remember Daniel chapter 2, these four empires were represented by a great metallic man. Here it is pictured. Remember that guy? The head of gold, the arms and breasts of silver, and the belly and legs of brass and of iron, feet and then toes, part feet, part clay. Now, how many of you remember that from Daniel 2? All right, I just want to make sure. Some of you were starting to glaze over, and I was afraid I was losing you in the clouds of prophecy here. All right, in Daniel 2, he speaks of four great empires, not as beasts, but as a great metallic man. We didn't see them as a glittering statue. We saw him as a glittering statue, but not here. Here we see him in beast-like form. Why is that? Why is it necessary to even cover 
these kingdoms twice. One for emphasis, but understand what you discover in this chapter are some significant differences in these four coming kingdoms. The dream of chapter 2 was seen by a pagan king and interpreted by Daniel. The dream of chapter 7 is seen by Daniel and it's interpreted by an angel. The first vision is a picture of history as we see it, as man sees it. And God wants us to understand that. The second vision here in chapter 7 is history as God sees it. It's not a beautiful, glittering statue. It's four ferocious beasts. God just pulls back the veneer, and He wants you to see really what is in the heart of these world leaders. They are beastly people. All right, now that's the introduction to the vision. Still with me? All right, stay awake. Secondly, there's the information in the vision, and we'll just crack the door on this. The first part of the vision, Daniel tells us, deals with the nature of the nations. A beast lives by the law of tooth and claw, self-preservation, and so God now describes these four beasts in that way. First, he mentions the lion nature of Babylon. That's the first kingdom. Now, historically and biblically, the very first worldwide kingdom was Babylon. Now, Egypt was a, a very important empire, but it was never worldwide. It was a localized empire. The very first worldwide empire in the history of man was Babylon, and God writes about it here in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So here's an artist's rendition of it in this picture. Uh, if you remember, we already studied in the second chapter. We looked at the uh, gates of Ishtar. Remember that? Some gates. I should have brought the picture to those uh, that were actually in Daniel's day, that he would have walked by on a regular basis that have been supernaturally, I suppose, preserved by God, some that ISIS have not gotten. And uh, you see these gates with all these winged lions on it. And that doesn't surprise us. Different nations of the world, even today, use different animals to symbolize their nations. The symbol of Great Britain and Ethiopia is a lion. The symbol of Australia is a kangaroo. Uh, the symbol of India is either a three-headed lion or an elephant. The symbol of the United States is an eagle. And so in Daniel's day, different civilizations were pictured by different animals. And the winged lion picturing the first empire is clearly a symbol of Babylon for several reasons. First, the lion, of course, is the king of the beasts. And the eagle is the king of the birds. And so it corresponds to the head of gold, to the top of the uh, statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Second, both of Daniel's predecessors and his contemporary prophets used the picture of a lion and an eagle to picture the nation of Babylon. And again, because of the strength and the swiftness that this nation possessed. Jeremiah, who lived before Daniel... We're going to see Daniel the prophet reading the prophet Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, when we come to the ninth chapter. But Der Jeremiah said this, A lion has gone up from his thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Remember Jeremiah? He preached to the southern two tribes after the kingdom split called Judah. And he said, there's a nation, and man, they're coming to get you and you're not listening, and you would do well to listen. And so they come, 
and they come as a lion. Habakkuk 1.8 says this, speaking of Babylon, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Third, again, we know from archaeology that the symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. And then fourth, the changes that this beast represent perfectly picture what we studied of King Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter. Let me refresh your memory. Remember when Daniel reviews it in the fifth chapter, he says of Nebuchadnezzar, I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind. Uh, was also given to it. So look at the description here. Go to the next slide there. There we go, Daniel 7, 4. Um, This is a picture of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It says, a man was made to stand on two feet, and a human mind, the King James says, and the old American standard, the ASV says, a human heart, it's more literal to the Hebrew, I think a little better, is given to it. What is that picture? King Nebuchadnezzar in his mighty conversion. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he reviews his kingdom in the fifth chapter in the 19th verse? It says, and because of the grandeur which he bestowed, God bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. So what does God do? He plucks this guy's wings. He humbles him. Remember that day? It's recorded in the fourth chapter. He's out there on his balcony. He's looking at this great place that he has built. And he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, To you, it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. So God plucked his wings. But if you remember the fourth chapter, after seven years, God converted him. You're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Someone challenged me on that. They said, well, Pastor Carl, what if we don't meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I said, then you'll meet him. (laughs) Uh, On two feet. Oh, you all are slow this morning. Come on now, stay with me. On two feet, he was able to walk again. And he's given a real live heart because he's converted. Now in verse 5, he moves from the lion nature of Babylon to the bear-like nature of Medo-Persia. Notice, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. Now this is not the Russian bear. Some guy on TV I saw a few months ago and he, uh, he says, oh yeah, the lion, that's Great Britain, and the bear, that's Russia, and this is happening in our day, and what an abuse of p- prophecy, and what a distortion of Scripture. God makes it clear who these kingdoms are. You can't lay contemporary idioms on them. Medo-Persia is pictured as a bear, and what a fitting symbol, because a bear is an animal of great strength. And this nation was fierce in its ability to fight. Put in the margin next to this, Isaiah 13, 17 through 18. Isaiah 13, let me read it to you. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They were a fierce people. Like a bear, no compassion whatsoever. 
They were hard on their victims, even the kids they slaughtered, and they had no pity on the pregnant women. And according to verse 5, this bear is pictured as raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth. And again, this is a lopsided picture of the Medes and the Persians. Now, we just read a prophecy from Isaiah that he wrote 150 years before it ever happened. He speaks of this nation, describes it vividly. He will also speak of another coming king, Cyrus, ever before he's even born. And he not only speaks of the king, he names the king. Cyrus is named ever before he's born. This is why the critics hate the Bible, because it is so precise. And so here's this bear. It's in a lopsided kingdom, so to speak. The Persians were stronger and greater than the Medes. But to come into power, they have to overthrow three nations. History records it. The Bible prophesied it. Lydia, Egypt, and ultimately Babylon. Now remember, this prophecy was given in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. At this time, Medo-Persia is no threat whatsoever. They're still a very weak nation, but in the next decade, they are going to grow. But God writes of it ever before it happens. And so God looks through the telescope of prophecy, and he says, Babylonia is going down, and the Medes and the Persians are coming up. Now, this prophecy, as the prophecies that follow, are so incredibly precise that the critics say that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C., but the 2nd century B.C. It was written after the fact because they are so incredibly precise, especially when we come to the 11th chapter. It is mind-blowing. Oh, it couldn't have happened before it happened after. Well, number one... They're going against what the Jews have taught for centuries. They have always documented this book as the 6th century B.C. But when we come through 9, 10, and 11, I will show you why that is an impossible position to hold. But lay aside what I think, what Jesus thinks is the most important. And in Matthew, the 24th chapter, the 15th verse, he does not refer to Daniel as the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. Now, there's the lion nature of Babylon. There is the bear nature of Medo-Persia. Now, there is the leopard nature of Greece. The leopard nature of Greece. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third great empire, this leopard, was pictured by a leopard because of its agility, its speed, and its thirst for blood as a carnivorous animal. And do I have to wonder who this third empire is? No, because Daniel 8.21 and Daniel 11.21 tells me it is Greece. And of course, if you know your history, if you're awake, remember high school history, all right, then you know that Alexander the Great conquered the world at a rate that no one could ever have imagined. And at the age of 29, he sat down and wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. He, with swiftness, conquered from Macedonia to Africa all the way to India. And he did it in lightning speed. We will see this leopard pictured all not even touching the ground. It happened so fast. And then this leopard, this beast, has four heads. And if you remember, when he's laying on his deathbed at the age of 33, Alexander, to whom should your kingdom go? And it is given to four of his generals, and Cassander, Lysinicus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. It's amazing, because God writes all of this ever before it even happens. God is giving Daniel this dream. And what Alexander does is not simply because of his 
military prowess and genius, as most would say. It's because of what God says in this verse, and dominion was given to it. God allowed this man to prosper, and for a very important reason. He has troops of 35,000, and he goes against Medo-Persia that has 300,000 in their army, and he crushes them. Secular historians, again, apply it to his genius. The Bible says it happened because God chose to let it happen, that there was a higher power working behind the scenes because God was setting the stage at this point for the first coming of his son. And then I want you to see in verse 7 the brutal nature of Rome, the brutal nature of Rome. We read after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dread, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So Daniel describes this fourth beast as dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong with large teeth of iron. And furthermore, he said it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its feet. Be, with its feet. Here's a picture of it. I don't know how else to describe this beast except as brutal. In fact, Daniel doesn't even try to compare this beast with another animal because there's no animal that he can pick out of God's creation that would be representative of it. But while Daniel doesn't try to describe it, John gives us some insight that Daniel doesn't. Put out in the margin next to verse 7, Revelation 13, 2. Revelation 13, 2. There in Revelation 13 and verse 2, The apostle writes, and the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. We've already met him. And his feet were like those of a bear. We saw him. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. We've discussed him as well. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne in great authority. So this beast is being given power directly by the dragon of old, whom the revelation and the rest of scripture identifies as the devil himself. Now, you already know if you were here for Daniel chapter 2 that the fourth beast, of course, is the Roman Empire. And more words are used to describe this fourth beast than any of the previous three. We're told here in verse 7 that this great power devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And that's exactly how history records Rome took over Greece. And unlike the other empires before it that only had a loose confederation of nations, when Rome came in, they came in with total, absolute control. They had a system that you see in the New Testament. When they came in, they enslaved the people. And every person was assigned a Roman citizen. And this was an issue they had to deal with in the first century where a Christian was given some slaves from a conquering people. Or you were conquered and you had a Christian who was your master. And so Paul addresses this. But this is how Rome controlled the world. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You say, Pastor, I'm afraid to ask what the the horns stand for. Well, you don't have to ask. Just keep reading. Uh, You go down to verse 24, and you see this recurring symbol, and it says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Now, let's ask a question. Did Rome in the early centuries of the first millennium ever divide into ten parts? Of course not, never. Now, here's a picture. Go back. Remember, here's the 
two uh, visions, one of a statue, one of these four beasts, and they parallel the head all the way down to the feet. Now, remember the ten toes. In Daniel 2, they represent ten nations, ten kings. How many toes were there? Ten. All right. Just want to make sure you're with me. Well, just as there were ten toes in this metallic schedule, in this metallic uh, man, there are ten horns in this beast. And the ten horns correspond with the ten toes, and they represent ten kings. Did Rome ever have ten toes, ten kings, ten horns, in a unified fashion? Never. Never happened. Never happened. Rome was not overthrown. It just fell apart. But if you remember from Daniel 2, he speaks not of five kingdoms, but four. And this fourth kingdom would fall apart, but then it would gather strength at the end of time, and it would ultimately be crushed by the Messiah himself. And so there's a vestige of this fourth kingdom that remains. And there's coming a time in human history where it will come together, ten nations, and those nations will be around. Uh, Listen to these words from Daniel 2.24. And the days of those kings, those ten toes representing the ten kings, and the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. What does that tell you? This kingdom comes back to life before Jesus comes back. It will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it, Messiah's kingdom, will endure forever. When will this happen? And the days of those kings. Now, you might want to flip back to Daniel 2 for just a moment. If you remember in Daniel 2, 41 and 42, there was a gap of time just as there is here in Daniel chapter 7. And that's often true in Bible prophecy. Very often in Bible prophecy, in one verse, God will speak of two prophecies with a huge gap of time between the two. And there's a reason for that. Now, I won't go into that today or I'll never finish the sermon. But just put that and channel that on the side. But between Daniel 2.41 and 2.42, there's a gap of time. And that revived Roman Empire described in the 44th verse will come to life. Most of you know that principle in passages like Isaiah 9.6. Bring that up. For a child will be born to us. We read it every Christmas. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, we say in the incarnation, a child will be born to us and that child's name was Mighty God, Jesus himself. God took on our humanity as the prophet said. But when on earth did the governments of this world rest on his shoulders? It hasn't. But it will, the next verse says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The governments of this world have never yet rested on the shoulders of Jesus where he ruled the world with a a rod of iron, but he will during his millennial reign. And so between Daniel 2, 41 and 42, there's a time gap. And between that gap of time, God will take this fourth kingdom and he will bring it up and there will be 10 kings that will be brought together. It has never happened in Roman history, but it is going to happen. And I believe God is setting the stage for that. And we learn from the book of Revelation that there will be this 10-nation confederation 
and out of it, from among it, will come the Antichrist himself. In the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation, you will see the very last form of human government, and there will be a confederation of 10 nations that will come out of the Roman Empire. You say out of the eastern side or the western, we'll come to that, just hold on to it. But 10 nations will come, and from among those 10 nations, there will be one that will arise. And from that nation will come this world ruler. Now, we're going to study that, but uh, let me remind you what Daniel 2.43 says. And in that, you saw the iron mixed with common clay, the bottom part of that metallic man. They will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so God says that there's going to be a mix of nations or countries, 10 specifically, that will be unified by the seed of men. It's going to be a very important phrase that we're going to discuss as to what that means. And God is going to show that while these nations have a unified strength, they're still not totally mixed together. They're separate, but they're not mixed together. Now, Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. He is going to come as the stone, the mighty rock, and he's going to crush this confederation of nations. Now, this is just the small introductory thoughts to this vision, and we'll dig into the finer points later. So stay with me. Some of it I know doesn't make sense, but if you will stay with me and apply your biblical mind, God will help you. Secondly, there's not only the nature of the nations, I want you to see the advent of the Antichrist. We're just introduced to him here, but we're going to learn so much about the Antichrist in the 8th chapter and especially the 11th chapter. In fact, you may not know it, but more is said about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book at all of the Bible. Look at verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And it says, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Here we meet the coming Antichrist, and we're just introduced to him today. And if you come back next week, you'll see much more detail. But some of the descriptive passages uh, that are most helpful to us concerning the Antichrist are right here in the book of Daniel. We first learn something about his origin. Think about the origin of Antichrist. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. So out of these ten nations, these ten horns, will come an eleventh horn. A distinct horn, not part of the ten nations, but an eleventh horn, the Bible says, that will come up from among these kings. He will come to the forefront, to the forefront of this ten-nation confederation, and he's going to dominate as a world leader. Secondly, consider the obscurity of the Antichrist, his obscurity. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. In other words, another leader is coming. He's a little horn. Uh, he's, he's small uh, in stature initially. He's ignored. Most people aren't much paying much attention to him. He has this insignificant, obscure beginning. But all of a sudden, he rises up, and he comes into a leadership position. And he uproots three kings, three horns, who probably, uh, for whatever reason, don't go along with his program. But he'll explain it to them very simply. And so out of these ten kings, among them will come one king, an eleventh king, who will be this world leader. He's little, 
He's small at first, but he will become the world leader. There are many names, many titles given to the Antichrist. Most of you know him by the Antichrist. He's called the beast. He's called the little one, the little horn, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Over 40 different titles are given to him in the word of God. Notice in addition, his observation, the observation of the Antichrist. We read here in verse 8, his horn, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. Now, he may seem small and insignificant at first, but he's very wise. And if you know the term eyes in Scripture, it's repeatedly used to describe unusual mental acuity. He's clever. He's shrewd. He's knowledgeable. He's going to be able to solve problems that no one else can solve. But of course, if you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, you know he has this ability because Satan himself gives him power. So Little Horn, he starts very obscure, but he has eyes with great power of observation, with satanic power behind him. But in addition to his origin and his obscurity and his observation, look at his oratory power, the oratory power of the Antichrist. This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Friends, you talk about a mouth. He's talking about a man who can capture audiences by the things that he says. He will be so convincing, he'll call up, down, down, up, black, white, white, black, and you'll believe it. If you're here, I hope you won't be. I mean, in one word, if you want to describe the Antichrist, he has a big mouth. I mean, he's a big boaster. That's what he is about. Now, we'll have to leave it here. It's like the continuation of a good movie, to be continued. But we'll pick it up here next week. But let's ask a question. What relevance does this have to us today? Let me leave some enduring principles for us to take. First, we see in this passage the deterioration of human government. When God pictures the kingdoms of this world, he does not picture them in an upward spiral, but in a downward dive. Chapter 2 began with the head of gold, and it ended with feet of iron mixed with clay. We went from gold to silver to brass to iron, and we ended up in the mud. Down, 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 down. The Bible does not teach evolution. The Bible teaches devolution. Man is not on a course of evolution. Man is going downward. Man didn't come from the mud. He's headed to the mud. He didn't spring from the beast. He, we're headed for the beast, for the Antichrist. Why is that important to know? Because it will give you perspective concerning the human governments of this world. Yes, I want to be a good citizen. I want to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. And I want to support our government however I can. And especially when our government interfaces with moral issues, then as a Christian and certainly as a pastor, I must speak. I will fight against abortion. I will fight against dismantling little babies and selling their parts like a commodity. I will stand against homosexual marriage as being considered normal. But ultimately, as long as I have breath, I want to preach the gospel of Jesus that has the power to change people. And you can spend all of your life being involved in the governments of this world. And there's a place, and God calls some Christians to invest their life in government. But understand, keep perspective, because in the end, it's a dead cause. In the end, God is going to bring all the governments of this world down, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. So put your priorities where God puts it. 
If he causes you to invest in government, do so, but only with a view towards winning people to Jesus and preaching the gospel. In fact, you should do that in whatever profession of life you're in. Secondly, another principle that jumps off the page is this. The exactness of fulfilled prophecy in the past tells me how God will fulfill prophecy in the future. I mean, you think about this passage of Scripture. Every single prophecy that he wrote of was literally, actually fulfilled. Not partially, but wholly, completely. When he writes of Rome, Rome is just a little village down on the Tiber River. When he writes of Medo-Persia, they're an insignificant group of people. But God fulfilled each of the prophecies exactly as he had foretold them. How will God fulfill the prophecies for the second coming? Exactly as he foretold them. Listen, if I understood that today, then I would want to listen to what God says because the apostle John will write in his life, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God, the wrath of God abides on him. If I were here today and I was unsure of my eternal destiny, If I was unsure that if I dropped dead in that seat that I would go to heaven, I'd want to fix that before this day was over. And if you will come to Jesus Christ, He will forgive you of all your sin. He will put His Holy Spirit in you that will give you a new power, a new heart, a new desire, a new proclivity to do the things of God. And that's where works come in. They are the fruit of a second birth, but they're not how you're born. Again, you must receive Christ. But if you die without Christ, or if he comes back before this day is over, you will spend an eternity wishing that you had humbly bowed to him as Lord. Now, men can mock this book. They can make fun of this book. But everything in this book is going to be fulfilled. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And you brought some people here today, some because they need to be saved, some who are in the sound of my voice, they're live streaming even in another country of the world, some who are in other campuses, some who are listening on a radio station, and you brought them within the sound of my voice this day because you love them and Christ died for them and you want them to be forgiven. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help some dear person today to recognize that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin, took all of the judgment, proved he was able when you raised them from the dead, that if they will call upon him and believe what you promised, that whoever will call will be saved. Help them to come in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, I am unworthy of heaven. Tell him, my friend, I am unworthy. I don't deserve heaven and I cannot earn it. But I don't trust myself to save me. I trust you today, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. Say it, mean it, believe it with all your heart. Lord Jesus, save me. Father, when we look at the nations of this world and we look at the atmosphere of the world that we live in, we can easily become disconcerted. But thank you that we are reminded through this passage that you are on your throne that you are orchestrating the events of human history ultimately to bring about the promises that you wrote of. Help us to understand that. Help us to realize that your word teaches that ultimately things will not get better but worse. 
But Jesus told us not to fear because these things must take place. So help us to rest in you as a sovereign God and to be obedient with the treasure of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. May we be quick to share it and ready to speak up for Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen.